From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado is growing, but at what cost? The state demographer joins us to talk about the challenges, the trade-offs, and the trends. So we mostly attract young adults. 22 to 37 is our bread and butter. And what are those young people doing for housing as more people are retiring, aging in place, and staying put in their homes? We'll talk about the impact. Then, a Colorado doctor who was in Gaza when Hamas attacked Israel one month ago is finally back home. Dr. Barbara Zinn shares the audio diary she kept documenting her experience. All through the night there was bombing, some of them fairly close by, and so many of us were awakened several times during the night. It was consistent through the day and through this morning and the night before, so it's always a concern. I'm Paulette, and I donated my car to CPR. I didn't want to have to go through the process of paperwork, you know, making sure somebody else is registering the car properly. And it was a way to give back that seemed like a better idea than trying to make a profit off of it. You know, we had been through a lot, me and that car. And after I donated, every time I listen, I feel like there's a little part of me in CPR. It's really easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's population growth continues to creep along, but even with slow increases, state demographer Elizabeth Garner sees some pitfalls ahead. She joins me now. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Your latest estimate has the state's current population at about 5.8 million people. And it's expected to go up to just over 6 million by 2025. Did looking out a ways to 2050, that number is 7.5 million. Big numbers, but that's still a pretty slow increase. Where is that growth expected to come from? So there's three things that cause growth or cause population change. It's births, deaths, and net migration. Hmm. Births by far are the largest contributor to our population change. We've got about 60,000 births per year. Wow. But we then subtract deaths from that, where we've got about 45,000 deaths per year. That's called natural increase. On top of that, we have net migration. So recently, that's been closer to 15,000, but it's been as high as 60,000 in 2015. So over our next several decades through 2050, we think that births are still going to be the largest total contributor. But because of the increasing deaths, that's going to push that down a little bit. But then migration would be the other component leading to that change. Can you paint a picture for us? Who are these folks moving to Colorado and what do they do for a living? So we mostly attract young adults. 22 to 37 is our bread and butter. Mm. And most of them come with an occupation. They come for a job. It's really hard to live here without one. Mm. Uh, It's hard to live here (laughs) in some cases with one. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So we do get actually some young adults come for school and stay. So they come to one of our universities and stay. But a lot of them also just come and they've got jobs here. And the jobs will range from high wage jobs in professional technical services, so some of the IT jobs. But we also attract folks that will come to 
fill kind of the accommodations, food service types of jobs. A lot of those are maybe temporary, so they're doing these jobs until they can get their, you know, real career maybe started. So 22 to 37, relatively young people, right? Yep. And that contrasts with a trend we've seen in Colorado for a while, which is that the state's population overall is aging. Am I correct on that? Absolutely. So our first big group of migrants came in the 70s and they were the baby boomers. They Mm. came and they've stayed and they've aged in place. Now they're aging into the 65 plus. So for last decade, this decade, and probably next, the following decade, so between 2040 and 2050, the fastest growing age group is our 65 plus. And Mm. actually, it's even a little bit older. It's our 75 to 84 year olds. If we look at just one 10 year age group are by far the fastest growing and most growth in the state. And an interesting kind of statistic that we played with last week was that if we had no migration at all, zero migration, our only age group to grow would be the 65 plus. So Mm -hmm. when we have these conversations about migration and do we like people, do we want people to move to the state, point is, is if we want to fill jobs, we will need those migrants to come to the state. So you have a growing number of people who are working and having families and also a growing number who have retired or are heading in that direction. How does that play out for the state's economy and our way of life here? It will make a big impact. So we've got about 40,000 people a year retiring from the labor force. We're expecting about 400,000 over this decade. Last decade, it was about 50,000 a year retiring and leaving the labor force. That leaves a huge gap, people needing to fill those jobs. So that's one reason we have migration to the state is to fill those positions but also then any new jobs that we create. And we're kind of looking at this forecast that we are creating about 40,000 new jobs a year. We've got about 40,000 that retire a year, meaning we need about 80,000 people to fill jobs a year. And we can't do it just with those that live here. That's why we need people to move in from out of state. So this has a a huge impact on the economy and is why our labor force is as tight as it is, is because we've got these growing number of retirees in the state. And are older people staying in their houses longer than they used to? No, they're staying in their houses as they always have. It's just that we've never had a lot of older people. This is really the first couple of decades we have really had a lot of older adults. Hmm. Now, Colorado already has a housing shortage. How will this variety of age groups play into that? The way that it impacts the state right now is the fact that we don't see a lot of churn in the state because of our older population that doesn't move as often. So when we had a larger share of our population in younger age groups— that moved off and you would see more churn in the housing. A lot of people will age in place. It doesn't necessarily like negatively affect the housing market at all, but what it does do is it changes it from only being primarily workers to also being workers and retirees. So like I'm hoping this decade with luck that I'll retire. (laughs) (laughs) And live the life, right? (laughs) I'll age in place, my house, Used to accommodate four people. Now it accommodates two because Mm -hmm. I've got two launched. 
my husband and I hopefully will both retire. Mm-hmm. Now that house will no longer house any worker. It will only house retirees. Mm. And that's happening to about 400,000 people over this decade. So that will have an impact on like the share of housing used for workers versus used for non-workers. Let's talk about low-income folks. What are the services they're going to need as they age? So the same services that they've needed over time, right? It, so we've always had older adults. We've always had a variety of income of older adults from very poor to very rich. Uh, they're going to need the same services that they always had. So they might need assistance with housing. They may need assistance with any kind of uh, food, medication, transportation, where you know they can't get that either on their own or with family, that they'll just need more services. So I mean, this could be a a fairly big impact on areas where even without a change in the percent of our population that's in poverty that are older, we're just going to have so many more people that are older that will also get more people that need assistance. So I think, you know, we've got these things called area agencies on aging, Mm, and they help support, uh, especially the lower income, older adults. They're just going to have a lot more demands put on them. Yeah, actually, I thought about that. I'm actually in a couple of online groups for those with aging parents, and there's a lot of resources being passed back and forth. Hey, where can I go for this? Where can I go for that? And many times, these are the children trying to find resources for their parents. Absolutely. So in regards to this housing issue, there is kind of a supply logjam here. Fewer people per house the older folks staying in their homes longer, and the newcomers needing places to live. Absolutely. And on top of the logjam of that piece, uh, we also didn't build during the Great Recession. So from about 2007 all the way until about 2018, we really stopped building housing units because of the financial crisis. Mm. There wasn't funding available to build. So you go 10 years without building, you're still having population growth. That tightens up that housing market even more so. We finally start building in 2018. Then we have COVID and Mm. everybody's working from home or a lot of people are working from home. So the demand for housing increases. We have really low interest rates before last year. So the demand for housing grows. (laughs) We don't build we have aging population with smaller household size. I mean, it's almost the perfect storm causing this supply logjam for housing. I know you don't make the laws or the policies, but your numbers and projections certainly could provide some guidance. How do you suggest breaking that logjam? So I really actually don't have a lot of really good ideas on how you break the logjam. And that's why we've got a lot of policymakers that uh, are a lot brighter than I am on that side. (laughs) But they do use our data and information to do that planning. I mean, what we need to try and do is basically build, but also build reasonably, uh, not put too much pressure on community services. Like if you force communities to build beyond their capacity, then they're going to have a really hard time meeting that need of their population. So come up with a building plan We know what kinds of 
people we have and where the demand is for housing. So build those products and keep it nice and steady. The boom and bust cycle that we've had historically in construction is what really destroys the industry. We lost over 70,000 jobs in construction during the Great Recession. Wow. And it has taken us basically 10 years to try and recover that industry. We lost the employees. We lost the supply chains. We lost the firms. We lost the input suppliers. And so that's we don't want to do that again. <laughs> so let's just not do that. That would be my my goal. So what about condos? Is that an option maybe for older adults to consider moving into condos, maybe a lower maintenance situation? Absolutely. I think every housing product type is something that we should be looking at, remembering that we're not all the same. There's some older adults that will want the condos. Certainly, they're going to want the purchase option. Most older adults want to own because they want that price security, right? Um, They don't want to deal with rents that might Mm. continue to grow. So looking for ownership options at different sizes, with different amenities, at different costs is something that we need. And we know that we've had a challenge with condos. And I believe the policymakers are going to be looking at condos this next legislative session to try and improve those numbers, because that's really where we've seen also a dearth in production. We just haven't been building condos like other states or the, you know, the average for the country as a whole. Elizabeth, thanks for sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth Garner, Colorado State Demographer. Her office tracks Colorado's population and projects what will happen in the future. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. It's not only like paint on a wall, it's like culture on a wall, and that's meaningful. Check out Off the Walls a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Janice Henderson Investors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. She was in Gaza on a humanitarian mission when Hamas launched its surprise attack on Israel. Now, a month later, a Grand Junction pediatrician has finally returned home. Dr. Barbara Zind was on a planned trip delivering medical care to kids with the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. But instead, she ended up having to shelter from the fighting with other aid workers. She recorded some of her experiences in voice memos. She shared them with CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg. This is my eighth day in a UN camp. We are isolated from the general population just because we stand out as different. And so we're in a safe place. We have food, we have water, but the people in the regular camp, when camp had over 30,000, probably 50,000 by now, with inadequate toilets, no portable toilets, one shower, I think, for everyone. So sanitation was a huge problem. The sanitation is awful for these people and the food insecurity, water insecurity is um, abysmal. When I was in Gaza City for the first five days, sorry, six, seven days, um, we just heard almost persistent bombing, shelling, sometimes missiles going out. 
right now in South Gaza, the, we still see some missiles going out. We hear some bombing, and there's drones. There's a constant drone presence from the Israelis. This war has touched everybody's lives. Uh, one of our PCRF staff members lost his brother-in-law who was helping some Germans to escape. A woman presenting a program where she was teaching children boxing lost two of the participants, young children in, in her program. Uh, people are losing family members. People are, these, are all, these are all just citizens, just common citizens. So I thought I'd say a little bit about when I usually come and what I see. So what I see usually is, is a system that's on just the brink of falling apart. So I see children with chronic diseases who medi need medications, diabetics who need test strips and insulin. And, and this is on a good day. So this is last year when things were relatively stable that people can't get medications that they need. It's frustrating for us to know that there are trucks with relief, with humanitarian aid. They're just sitting on the Egyptian border waiting to come. And I just can't overemphasize the importance of allowing that humanitarian aid to come in and just the cruelty of not having that aid here. Okay, so what are my conditions here? I know a lot of people want to know about that. I'm in a safe United Nations center in um, southern Gaza. I'm with a group of other um, people that work for humanitarian organizations. So Doctors Without Borders, Mercy Corps, a lot of those organizations are represented here. And we've started that we were ready to go anytime. So we hardly unpacked. We were ready to go. Um, we got some dinner one night from the organization Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. The next morning, I thought we would go. I gave it away to, to people here that are Palestinians that are here in the camp, and then it ended up we did not go, so people weren't very happy with me. But um, since then, we've almost started to, we have started to kind of make our own camp. We have, some people are sleeping on the cement. We've gotten some cushions for them. I'm sleeping in the car. We are lucky because we've had been able to get food delivered and water, um, we have uh, one bathroom for about 35 of us, and we've set up a committee to make sure and keep it clean. We've started to become a real community. I've taken some two Arabic classes now and took an introduction to Islam this morning. We had a stretch, and in the last couple of evenings we've had a... Um, what we call the Rafa show, where somebody interviews people that are with here. It's a little bit of comedy, a little bit of just getting to know what other people have been doing in Gaza. So um, it's a bad situation that we're here, but it's been really enlightening for me just to meet people from really all over Europe, Africa, Asia. So we're pretty much... I don't, I don't want to say settling in, because on the other hand, we're ready to go at any minute... But we're not just chomping at the bit, waiting at the gate to go, but we're waiting for a safe passage. We need our passage to be approved by Israel, by Hamas, by Egypt, and so that we know that we can really have a safe passage, and we would love that link to humanitarian aid, of course. I guess I can get an update on our little camp situation. We've been here four days initially um, at this site. We were told we could only stay 24 hours. 
so that's fortunate. We're still in good spirits, but anxious to leave. Um, everyone's mental health status seems to be okay. We have food and water. I was sleeping in the car for the first few nights, and the last couple nights I've been sleeping out on the, on a foam mat and a blanket, so that's been actually more comfortable. People say it gets really cold at night, but I have to tell you, Coloradans, that I was just doing the Colorado Trail last month, and sleeping here and get, having the temperature get to the 60s is nothing. So I'm thankful that I'm from Colorado and um, have been out in the mountains recently. On the other hand, the situation for he people here it is much worse. Um, the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, one of our lead staff members, uh, is not at this camp and is somewhere in middle Gaza. And he has no electricity, no water, and occasionally I'll hear from him. I am so fortunate to be in our little cloistered environment with other internationals that are doing relief work. Outside our gate, they're cramped in. They have few toilets. They don't have the luxuries that we have here of sleeping, you know, on an open mat without somebody like right next to me and getting the food that we get. It is Monday, October 23rd. See, I'm getting better. I'm turning into a reporter. Um, all through the night, there was some, there was bombing, some of them fairly close by, and so many of us were awakened several times during the night. It was consistent through the day and through this morning and the night before, so it's always a concern. They've asked all these people from the north to evacuate, but now they're really bombing the south also. I had a message from our project coordinator who is here in Gaza and is evacuated from Gaza City to the middle border and he's just knows so many friends and family that have been killed and I think that's just true of everyone here and we're all so fearful of the civilian casualties in this war and just that the bombing continues without any regard for that. It's hard to say how long it'll be as far as food supplies, but we seem to be well supplied. But I know there's a million probably people here in Gaza who are having a lot of food and water and security and electricity. We can continue to have some electricity through the UN and their generators. But once that that runs out or the the fuel to, to fuel the truck that's bringing water that for our toilets and our now our drinking and washing water, that may be problematic. So we're starting the day with a little bit of hope and and lots of concerns. This is Tuesday. Hassan, our PCRF worker, I know he lives in a I would say suburb of Gaza or north of Gaza City, and they were notified that they need to leave their homes in their town and he just knows that his home is going to be destroyed. So here you are, he has eight children, um, he has 19 siblings, huge family, and they're all down here. They're all safe, but they know they have nothing to go back to. You cannot just target one Hamas person in a 
in an area that's so densely populated without killing so many civilians. One good news is that um, Palestinian Children's Relief Fund has a pediatric cancer center here in Gaza. They also have one in the West Bank, and they're working hard to, to evacuate those childhood cancer patients so that they can continue to, to receive their therapy in other countries while this war is going on. Anyway, hope for, hope for the best, hope for diplomacy and an end to this war. Last night we woke up to um, some different sounds. We had the bombs, but then we also, as explained to me, also had some fire from the from ships in the Mediterranean shooting into, um, probably into the town that's about six miles away from here. It was enough that sleeping on the ground, I could feel the ground shake with some of those bombs. So concerning, but, um, but not in our close vicinity, as far as I can tell. It is Sunday the 29th. It's pretty early in the morning. It's been three weeks since the war started. We're still at our UN camp. Um, but it's a long time. People are getting tired. There's still been consistent bombing from the Israelis. Sometimes we'll see missiles going out. We are trying to do some rationing of water, and that adds a little stress on the group, but we've been kind of working together as a group, trying to maybe not make it autocratic, but that's that's been a challenge. And then yesterday, um, some people went and just looked at what we have in our pantry, and we really only had enough for 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 all of us for two days at nine, eight to 900 calories. Um, fortunately, a car, one of our drivers went out and they did come back and we do have a week of food, but they had to drive all the way to Gaza City and that is so hazardous. We know that the groceries are gonna be empty next week. Our other challenge was not having any phone service, Wi-Fi, nothing to communicate for 36 hours. It was difficult not being able to communicate with my family. Um, I could send one text on someone who had a Spanish international phone service, but, but really, um, that's really challenging, and we're so happy this morning to have that up. For us, the last four days have been just crazy. For one day, one day we had water insecurity, the next day food insecurity, then our housing insecurity as we... We're finding a place to go. The large group of 50 we were with had to split up because we couldn't find a facility that could have all of us. And so now I'm in a, the smaller group of um, all still uh, people, humanitarians who work for non-governmental organizations. So, but there's just eight of us now trying to get out and then with a family that's um, helping drive and, and support us. It is Tuesday, October 31st. I just want to talk a little bit about the generous, generosity and resilience of the Palestinian people. So for, for us, finding a place, we have a lot of resources looking, and then in the place we are not, people are just so hospitable, so generous. We're in a, we're in a clinic, really, and next door is a kindergarten center. We, um, we don't have way to cook right now. When we first arrived, the generator wasn't working. We didn't have gas for the gas stove. The stove we brought is electric. But next door, 
they were willing to share the gas they had for the store for their stove um, generously sharing some of the cooking utensils they had I mean when you have so limited resources and I don't know if they know where they're getting their next stove gas it's just amazing how they are hospitable and, and generous they're resilient as we were leaving our UN camp you could just see just outside the facility people had pretty much set up stores and shop and shops and um, just kind of setting up places to live and communities wherever they went well my journey home it is I should tell you it's Thursday it's about 4 a.m. here in Egypt and I'm looking over the Nile and I feel like I'm kind of in a different world and I am so kind of this journey home for me started I woke up in the middle of the night I'm sleeping on the floor just kind of check for my whatsapp and my husband had forwarded an email he got from the state department so we got ready we went um we were only 10 minutes away from the rafa border and we were there one of the first cars at about 6 30 there was chaos at the first door when they tried to explain that they will call your name and then you and then you go into this other waiting room and there was just a lot of people, kids, everybody. I was amazed how well the kids did throughout that day. It was it was pretty warm in there, no food. They were prioritizing um, the ambulance and the critically ill people getting out, and I appreciate that, I and I'm sure their families do too. And then even on the way, driving with a shuttle, we were delayed by letting um, aid trucks going the opposite direction into Gaza in. So... Once again, not a delay that I'm complaining of. It was great to see those eight trucks going in. Overall, by the time we started waiting at 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m., and we left, actually got to our cab on the Egyptian side of the Rafa border, it was about 12 hours. Then we had that long drive from the other side of the border to, uh, to Cairo itself. So... Um, a lot of stops, a lot of um, checkpoints along the way. It was a slow go, but we were all optimistic and really just happy to be here. And I'm just happy in my hotel room looking at the Nile and and showered and ready to go home and probably leaving in about 24 hours. After three plane rides and one long car trip from Denver, Dr. Barbara Zind did arrive home in Grand Junction earlier this week. We sat with tea on her back patio with a serene view of red rock cliffs. I grew up in Arizona, so when we moved here, I was like, I want to look at the desert. You know, I love the desert. She tells me the reality of being back has not hit yet. And even though her life was in danger in Gaza, she didn't really feel that way in the moment. When you're there, I mean, I'm sleeping on the ground on a foam mattress and a little blanket. But when you know what's going on around you, it's like, what? I don't have anything to complain about. For Zind, the tragedy of this conflict is clear. All the everyday people who've died, Palestinians and Israelis. You know, when you do things like this against civilians, you just create more hate. And I, you know, I don't want to sound like you know a rainbow bubblehead or something, but may, I mean, the only hope is that this is a wake-up call to to the world that okay, we all need to intervene and make this uh, a sustainable environment so that both 
both groups can survive. Zinn says she'd like to return to the Middle East for another aid mission next year, just as she has for more than a decade. But the question of whether or not she goes to Gaza again, that will take a family discussion. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Grand Junction pediatrician Dr. Barbara Zind speaking with Stina Sieg after returning home this week from Gaza. She was there doing humanitarian work when the war broke out. She shared voice memos with us about her experience as the violence unfolded. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Classes about the environment in Colorado schools are an elective. Students may get a snippet of sustainability here or a small bit on climate change there, but it's taught separately, if at all. One man in Lafayette who's a naturalist by training has a big-picture approach for schools to teach these concepts. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. 17-year-old Rima Petadia wants to be a biomedical engineer, but she's always had this passion for the environment. One day at school, she heard her design and innovation teacher talking with a man about his idea. I went up to them saying, hey, what are you guys talking about? It sounded really interesting. The man, Martin Ogle, who works with schools and on open space issues in Lafayette, was saying that typically students who want an environmental career are steered towards these jobs. Environmental scientist, forester, ranger. But that's just a small slice of the economy. Really, he was saying, every job now is a climate job. That is, there's a way that job can be more sustainable, whether you're a doctor, an engineer, or run an ice cream shop. There's something that everyone can do if we're going to create a green economy. But we don't teach students that, he says. Think of it this way. Human beings are facing the greatest threat to our existence ever. Students know this to their core. While some teachers are adept at solutions-oriented approaches to teaching climate change, most of the school system is kind of like la-la-la-la-la, as if this grave threat isn't really here. Inertia has something to do with it. We are doing things in the same ways we've always done them. Ogle would like to see two things in schools. One, principles of sustainability woven throughout the curriculum. Yeah, math, English, the works. And two, make explicit the connections between sustainable practices and any career. He calls it the all-careers approach. Rima spent months on a project creating a website that makes connections between sustainability projects in each of the engineering fields. You yourself can explore what it means to have environmental studies aligned with any sort of career in the world. Stella Corzine, another student at Peak to Peak Charter School in Lafayette, helped Ogle write a binder full of case studies about businesses that have been greened, from a bread-making company to the Vancouver Police Department. A lot of the time when we focus on climate change and global climate crises, we look at all of the negatives that we can't change instead of looking to the future and thinking about how we can adapt so that we can make a better future for ourselves. 
We got some hydroponics going on in there. Liz could talk to you about that. Christine Letter was her innovation and design teacher. She has students design their own products, like eco tampons or a self-watering pot that uses tea bags filled with nutrients for trees. Letter says too often, schools may tell kids, okay, show up here at this place and time and we'll pick up trash. And that'll do it. That'll give them the mental boost we're looking for. And I think that that's an, a vast, vast underestimation of what, of what service means and what it means for them to be the young environmentalists that they are at heart. You, you have to give them the capacity to be heard. Letter says the all-careers sustainability approach could fit beautifully into many areas of the curriculum. My husband teaches AP stats. When you're looking at statistics, what statistics can you look at that are about the Earth and our planet, and Colorado specifically, the place where we live, the air that we breathe? Letter would like to see state education leaders create classroom materials on sustainability that all teachers could use. But that would take legislation mandating officials create a resource bank for teachers. On the jobs side of things, the K-12 system has changed to make sure some students are ready for different careers in the economy. Green economy readiness, you know, could be the next step. Martin Ogle means one where businesses and industries are sustainable and don't destroy the environment. I have to say there have been many times where I've just felt so overwhelmed seeing what has happened within our world. Rima, the future engineer, no longer sees the frogs in her yard that she used to catch when she was younger. And she's only been on the planet 17 years. I don't want to necessarily go on with my life saying that, oh, I, I didn't do anything. You know, and then suddenly having to regret it in my later on years. Giving young people a deeper understanding of sustainability and how their future careers and lives will connect to it is something youth crave. Stella says to not listen to youth is to ignore their futures. She doesn't want to hear the same old mantra. It's a problem for the next generation. It's a problem for the next generation. But at this point, I think that we're at that generation. Like, we are that next generation, and we're kind of running out of time. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. A research team from Colorado Mesa University wants to help save the rainforest. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess has the story of a competition that ties together places like Zurich, Barcelona, and Grand Junction. What's one square kilometer of rainforest worth? We don't know yet, but finding out the answer to that question is worth $10 million to Tom Walla, a biology professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. He is leading a group that's in the final round of a global competition that will award an eight-figure payout to the team that can best advance our understanding of rainforests. So what we're trying to do is figure out how to evaluate that rainforest so that uh, individuals, companies, and maybe someday even the stock market could say there's a value in this rainforest beyond cows and soybean. It's virtually impossible to measure any rainforest completely. I would bet that not a single scientist on the planet would ever say they could tell you every species and every interaction that occurs in a rainforest a square kilometer in size. With our current technology, it just can't be done. If it can't be measured, then we can't place a value on it. If we can't place a value on it, we can't protect it in an economic sense. The XPRIZE competition is a five-year process 
The semi-final round involved a trip to Singapore, where teams had a timed window to test their technologies, endeavoring to catalog as many species as possible in a defined area of rainforest. The struggle has always been, how do we identify all these species? I, I work on moths, and I'm not a taxonomist, but I collect moths and send them to taxonomists. And there are many of them. And even of the thousands that we've collected, we only identify probably fewer than 20%, because most of them don't have names. So it takes years for them to get named. So somehow we have to count all these things, the moths, the flies, the wasps, the ants, the birds, the frogs, and the bats, and count all those things very quickly in 72 hours and get an estimate of what that square kilometer of rainforest really holds. And is that what the nets behind you are for, is for moths? <laughs> There's a net. Um, these are insect nets. These are for insect biology that I teach here at CMU. And they collect all the insects that students can collect. And I'm guessing that's probably not what you pitched to XPRIZE. You know, my first pitch was, why don't I drag an insect net around behind a drone? <laughs> and they said, you're on the right track. Good start. The CMU team is still using drones, but the nets are staying behind. Instead, drones take a small type of raft that rests in the rainforest canopy equipped with instrumentation that takes photos, records DNA, employs facial recognition, and listens for sound. In many ways, tropical rainforest stands in stark comparison to to our own desert. We have places that are strikingly beautiful from a visual perspective of landscape, but often the desert is the quietest place you'll ever hear. When you step out of your car in the desert, you can hear your own ears ringing. It's so quiet. If you lived in a rainforest, you would never know the sound of silence. If you were born in the Amazon, there would be no place you could ever go where you couldn't hear the raging sounds of insects, frogs, birds, of the leaf movement, just at a very high volume all the time. Wallace team is expansive, ranging from the University of Nevada, Reno, to Montreal, and encompassing everything from drone mechanics to political science. Tim Casey handles that last part. He's a poli-sci professor at CMU and directs the Natural Resource Center. I'm not very good at counting insects or, you know, plants or anything like that, but um, I'm, I'm reasonably good and interested in the question of how we manage those spaces. Casey is working on a framework for incorporating the new technology with indigenous communities. If it all works out, the team will not only have a mechanism for calculating rainforest biodiversity, and therefore the potential value of that area, but also a means for connecting that with local communities who have a similarly priceless understanding of their environment. And so we're trying to capture their tradition, what we call traditional knowledge, and that shows up in a lot of different ways. A good example of that is just right next door here in Bears Ears National Monument, where there's a sort of co-management agreement between indigenous populations and the federal government. The finals for the XPRIZE competition, which feature five other teams from around the world, including Spain and Switzerland, are set for early next year. Wallace says he understands if people are skeptical. You know, I get it that some people are circumspect about 
market-based solutions for problems that many of us put in a place that's close to our hearts. Some things in the world we protect because they have an intrinsic value that we believe should be protected independent of its market price. And I have believed this my whole life about rainforests. But all through my career, I have watched rainforests be cut and reduced. And I've watched cities expand into it, uh, timber companies cut it down. I've watched it become degraded and lost. And most recently in Southeast Asia, I've seen it converted into palm plantations to make vegetable oil on a scale that I thought was really not possible. It's going to be destroyed if it isn't protected. I do think that if there's a chance that we can make rainforests more valuable to people who are economically motivated, and we can make it valuable as an intact system, perhaps with people living in it in a sustainable way, then we can make a major difference in how much rainforest will be left on this planet in 50 years compared to where we're going today. In the dry, quiet confines of Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. Tom Hess is our Colorado Matters Western Slope producer. He spoke with the CMU team in September. You may read Tom's reporting on this effort to save the rainforest at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The state's highest mountain takes its name from the Colorado Territory's sixth governor, Samuel Elbert. He was son-in-law to disgraced territorial governor John Evans, whose role in the Sand Creek Massacre forced him to resign. But that wasn't the only time the state's highest office was the family business. Elias Ammons served a term 100 years ago. His son Teller served two decades later as Colorado's first native-born governor. And then there's the Adams family. Brothers Alva and Billy Adams each had three gubernatorial terms. Adams County is named for Billy. Alva got his name on Adams State University in Alamosa. His son, Alvin B. Adams, never made it to the governor's mansion, but served twice in the U.S. Senate and got his name on a water diversion tunnel under Rocky Mountain National Park. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The aftermath of a devastating West Virginia mine explosion forms the heart of a new production by the Boulder Ensemble Theater Company. CPR's Eaton Lane takes us to the regional premiere of Coal Country. All right. Uh, my name's Gary Quarles. Uh, I'll tell you, I've ain't never done nothing like this before. I've never been a person that's speaked out in front of people, never told a book report, poem, anything. Coal Country depicts the 2010 Upper Big Branch coal mine explosion, which killed 29 miners and exposed the mine owner's criminal negligence. I had 34 years in coal mining. My dad was a coal miner. Grandpa, dad, me, and then my son, Gary Wayne. This verbatim play uses interviews with two surviving miners and family members of those killed. Gary Quarles, a former coal miner, is portrayed by Chris Kendall. I started in the mines June the 22nd of 1976. Now, that was UMWA days. Back then it was all strictly union. I mean hard-nosed union. 
So how do you describe the story for Coloradans who aren't familiar with this piece? I describe it as a show that transports you into a world, West Virginia, a coal mining community that is tiny, and it privileges you with a window into people's hardest, hardest time in such a frank and heartful sense. Jessica Robley is Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company's producing artistic director, and she's directing this play. Because it's verbatim theatre, you're really hearing what they said, and they were very hungry to have a chance to say it. Robley says the play, which also includes original songs by Steve Earle, is a way to give the victims a voice. This rendition of Earle's song, The Devil Put the Coal in the Ground, is from the production by the Public Theatre in New York. Chris Kendall said he'd barely heard of the Upper Big Branch tragedy before he read the script for Boulder Ensemble's production. You get used to hearing those things, and they don't always have the impact that they ought to. I think a play like this can really open people's eyes to what we're still going through in this country in terms of management, uh, in terms of the way that profit and loss weighs on people's lives. The story of the mining disaster is grim, but actor Anastasia Davidson says Robley encouraged her to find the joyful moments for her character, Patty Stover. Stover's fiancé was killed in the explosion. And I think that that's really helpful to remember that, yes, these folks went through an unimaginable, devastating loss, but also they have such beautiful memories. That has been helpful because I think finding those moments and those nuances within the character can really bring light to it. Coal Country opens the Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company's 18th season. It's a season of change for the organization, which is under new leadership. Robley says presenting true stories through the words of real people can carry technical challenges as well as an emotional sense of responsibility, but that this approach has a unique power. Sometimes things happen in life that you would never write. You would never think to write. You watch it happen in life and you're like, whoa, you couldn't write that. (laughs) And that's sometimes how this feels. Like that's the gift of verbatim theater is that some of the descriptions in the show are not what a playwright would imagine, but they're what people thought in the moment. The CEO of the company that owned the Upper Big Branch Mine served one year in federal prison for violating mine safety laws. And the story has faded in most people's memories. Davidson says that makes doing the play now all that much more important. And I think so often when something like this happens where there's all of this attention all at once and then it goes away all of a sudden, media leaves, the news stories stop being told, the trial is over, it can easily seem like the stories will be forgotten and that this community's heartbreak will be forgotten. I'm so grateful to be telling the story because it lives on and it is a way for us to continue to pass down these people's story. Coal Country by the Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company plays at the Dairy Center in Boulder through November 19th. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. We should note that the Boulder Ensemble Theatre Company is a financial supporter of CPR News, but has no influence on our editorial content. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. 
Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.